Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Well, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 4. This is a different Sunday in the sense that we had a couple different moving parts today, but also in the sense that today there's no kids' church for five and six-year-olds, uh, so that means some of them are in the service. Um, and so they're learning. I guess the teachers have told me occasionally they'll do these on the fifth Sunday in order to help these five and six-year-olds learn how to sit through a service, um, learn how to sit and uh, be still. So adults, take notes from the kids, okay? See what they're doing. You guys set a good example today, okay? Many of you, no. It's, uh, it's really great to, to have them together and to have the liveliness in the service and uh, after and before all the children and the lives that they represent. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And um, I'm going to begin reading in verses one, verse 1. <clears throat> I'm going to read down to verse 22, and then we'll, we'll begin. This is um, Acts 4, verse 1. And I apologize ahead of time. I have this head cold that I know many of you do, and so we sympathize together, okay? Um, <clears throat> so if I sound a little more strange or obnoxious than I usually do, that's because I have my head here. My sinuses are, are quite full. So we're going to do our best here to get through that and hope my voice will hold up. Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. This is after Peter's sermon on Solomon's portico, after the healing of the lame man. If you weren't here last week, that's what we preached on. Verse 2, greatly annoyed as they were, the Sadducees, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day. And well, it was already evening. They threw them in prison. And then verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders, scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice that phrase, well, look at that, said to them, rulers of the, peoples, of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
You might have noticed a theme in almost all the songs and the, ver the readings this morning about a firm foundation and Jesus being the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they have been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, and they had nothing to say in opposition, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that a notable sign or miracle has been performed through them, it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak to anyone in his name, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And you know how that's going to go over, right? Verse 19, and Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge of that. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had further threatened them, further threats were laid down on their lives, right? They, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because, because of something, because of all the people. For all the people in that area were praising God for what had, had happened. Verse 22, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray to open this passage. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask God that you would make this become clear to us. Help us to understand this word was to understand it in such a way that it affects our lives, that we find ourselves transformed by truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message is live not by lies and tell the truth. Live not by lies and tell the truth. I'm going to be opening this morning with an illustration from a book by John Mark Comer called Live No Lies. I read it just recently, and I, I kept trying to come up with an illustration, and so I'm just going to read his because it's way better than mine. How about that? But I'm giving a shout out to him, so I don't think he would mind, right? Uh, the War on Lies. I think it'll make sense here in a moment. We're going to be talking a lot about truth. Truth and fiction. What is the truth is really one of our main points here today. What, how do we get to truth being truth? And how is it that others want to stamp out that truth? And Peter and John preaching about the truth of Jesus Christ. So he says this in his opening. You may not know this story, but it really did happen, all of it. Just after sundown on October 30th, 1938, ready? Some of you were around then, 1938, aliens invaded America. Do you remember that? The harbingers of an advanced Martian civilization came to enslave the land of the free. The first wave of aliens landed in an unsuspecting farming town called Grover's Mill, not far from Princeton University in New Jersey, just a short trek from Manhattan. Professor, Professor Richard Pearson was standing watch at Pearson, uh, Princeton's observatory. He had scoped eruptions of blue flames on Mars's surface just an hour before assumed it was a rare meteor shower and rushed to the scene of an investigation. But upon arrival, instead of the, uh, the space rock, he found a large metal cylinder in an open field, still steaming from entry and broadcasting odd scraping noises from inside its shell. As the reporters 
First responders and onlookers examined this crash site. The cylinder began to unfold, and a terrifying monstrosity of alien violence unfolded. You didn't think you'd hear about this at church, huh? On-site reporter Carl Phillips broadcasted this chilling report live across CBS's airwaves, and this part is true. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed, he said over the radio. I can see peering out of the black hole, two luminous discs. Are they eyes? It might be a face, but that face, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The eyes are black. The gleam is like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless eyes and seems to quiver and pulsate. What's that? There's jet flame springing from the alien. It's leaping right out and advancing at us. It strikes them on the head. Good Lord, they're turning it into flame. The whole field's now caught fire. The woods, the barns are on fire. Gas tanks of automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming your way. <laughs> So at this point, Philip's voice abrupts, cut, cut out of the radio, followed by an eerie hiss of radio static. Five long seconds later, the report resumed and announced America's worst fear, that aliens had landed on the eastern seaboard. The National Guard had literally been called in. The bells rang to warn people to evacuate Manhattan. The Secretary of the Interior urged all Americans to join the fight and stand for the preservation of human supremacy. Then came the word that more aliens were falling in Chicago and St. Louis. It was pandemonium in the streets. Urbanites fled in terror. People took refuge in, in churches. One woman screamed, New York has been destroyed. I believe the end of the world has come. Life as we know it is over. Now, as much of my conspiracy friends, uh, theory friends uh, would love the story to be true, it isn't, it was a lie. I know, shocking to you all. There is no alien invasion, but everything else that I read about actually happened. It wasn't a full-on lie, it was a, a work of fiction. The backstory was in the late 1930s, there was a tumultuous time in America. Not only did many scientists speculate that there was alien life on Mars, but closer to home, people were living in a fever pitch of anxiety. America was on the verge of war with Germany. The economy was still recovering from the Great Depression. And food scarcity was a growing threat. And just weeks before, those living in the Northeast here had endured the great New England hurricane of 1938, the most devastating storm to ever strike New England, leaving 700 dead and about 63,000 homeless. Add to the mix that it was after the dark on the night before Halloween, and you've got an emotional tinderbox just waiting for a spark. Enter Orson Welles. 33-year-old actor and director of the Mercury Theater on Air, a brand new radio program on CBS radio. Radio was still in its new art form, and its golden era, it's ripe for creative exploration and exploitation. It was the first medium to blur the lines between fact and fiction, between news and entertainment. And Wellis was a prodigy, his Mercury Theater was only 17 weeks in, and it was already a darling child of the critics. But as is the case in much indie art, it failed to garner much large audience, and he still had no commercial sponsor, and he was up against the most popular show of the day, the Chase and Sanborn Hour. And so Wellis knew he had to do something dramatic. So what he did was he bought H.G. Wells' 
the novel The War of the Worlds and developed that storyline of The War of the Worlds, this invasion of aliens, and he developed and changed it for radio and changed all the names and the places to American places like New Jersey and Princeton and actual places like Chicago. Then he had an actor mimic President Franklin D. Roosevelt's voice near perfect accuracy over the radio broadcast that there was an invasion. As you would imagine, people freaked out. A wave of mass hysteria. They, they didn't realize this was not true. They believed every word of it. It's a bizarre story. Aliens did not really and actually invade America. But this story reminds us of the fact that we are at war with fiction. We are at war with lies. And ultimately, there is a war for the world, a war for the worlds of lies versus truth. And how is we as the church, how can we speak truth in a world that is broadcasting all sorts of lies, invading every aspect of entertainment in your life? Everything you listen to is pervasively selling you a lie. And so, as Christians, as believers in the truth of Jesus, we are called to speak the truth. We are called to stand for the truth. Not just my personal truth, but the truth of Jesus Christ, that no other name given among men is capable of pushing back this darkness, disentangling us from the web of lies that we are ensnared in. Really, it's the name of Jesus that does this. It pierces through the evil, through the lies, through the fiction, through the anxiety and the dread and the stress. So many that are believing and taking this hook, line, and sinker, this name of Jesus cuts through all of that. And the, the fact is that we have this truth. Do we believe in this truth in such a way that we are actually willing to die for this truth, to spread this truth? There's another phrase that not only live no lies, but this phrase live not by lies, which is a famous essay by a famous revolutionary in many ways and literature writer and critic, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And after his publication of his famous novel, The Gulag Archipelago, which exposed the evil of the Soviet totalitarian regime under Stalin and many of the effects of that, he was expelled from Moscow and forced to go west. And on the day that Solzhenitsyn was arrested, February 12th, 1974, he released the text, Live Not By Lies. And the next day he was exiled from the, to the West and he received a hero's welcome by many for what he had said and what he had exposed in the Soviet Empire and communism and totalitarianism. And his famous essay, Live Not By Lies, is largely about the importance of the individual to purpose in their heart to stand for the truth no matter what, to push back against the evil by refusing to live by lies. You do this by small things, in small ways, not succumbing to lies, and if individuals in small ways, in doing small things, can change the culture of a society, is what he said. So live not by lies. He says in there, let their rule hold not through me. Here we see Peter and John in a similar way, in much greater way than any of these illustrations can illustrate. We see Peter and John doing a much greater thing in the sense that they begin to set the precedent that they are not going to be controlled by anyone, what they say and what they do. They will not live by lies. They will speak the truth no matter what the cost. 
Peter and John here, they set this precedent that, is, that echoes through church history even until now, where we as Christians are called to fear God and not man. We would rather obey God than man. Peter and John, in the name of Jesus, they heal this lame man, this crippled man. It's an extraordinary sign we were able to look at last week as we gave that illustration of reversing the curse. This curse has been reversed, and now it continues, not through just the ascended Jesus, but now through the apostles and in the church, we see this gospel-giving, life-giving message pervasively going out. Peter and John, then in the name of Jesus, they preach a sermon while this man who is now walking is clinging and laying hold of Peter, and he's preaching a sermon now to everyone. The powerful sermon is given. 5,000 people respond, and yet Peter and John are put in prison for preaching this message. They're charged to never speak about the name of Jesus in public ever again. Like I said, you probably know the storyline of Acts, and you know where this is going, and that certainly does not scare them, and it does not stop them. This statement here, it it really sets the scene, the statement of what we see Peter and John doing. Here they stand. That will set a much more aggressive picture as we come. For many of you know the name of Stephen. He's going to be one of the first martyrs of the church. He's going to be stoned to death for preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. He is going to lose his earthly life. He's going to exchange that for his spiritual life in response to what we see here in the preaching. And so Peter and John set that precedent. Yes, they are set free, but throughout there will be constant persecution coming against the truth and coming against the church. And Peter and John boldly say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or not, or rather listen to God, you can judge that. But we know what we're going to do. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard, and that is revolving around the person of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. I wonder if you and I would be able to say the same thing today. Can we join in that boldness, saying, silence us, you may try, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have read and hold in our hands today. We cannot but speak about our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the cry for all of us today, wherever we find ourselves in the 21st century. So to begin these points that we'll be going through somewhat quickly today is this idea, as we look through this idea of this first statement or this first question that's asked is found in the first five verses of what truth are we talking about here? What truth? It's a loaded term, especially in today's culture, but in all time, this truth. What actually got them arrested? Was there an angry mob? Was there burning down and breaking and looting in the facilities in this protest? Is that what's going on here? No, there was literally a sermon preached in a place where often uh, preaching happened and, and large groups gathered outside the temple there in the temple court of Solomon's portico. There was a healing of a man, something good had happened. So, so what exactly are they all mad about? It actually says, it's a fascinating phrase, verse 2, they were greatly annoyed. And I find this funny just because I find myself personally at times greatly annoyed. Not for the right reasons, <laughs> but typically like these guys, for the wrong reasons, I become greatly annoyed at something, right? And so why are they greatly annoyed? Why are they mad about? 
Well, ultimately, it's the same reasons these leaders, the Sadducees, Caiaphas, and Annas, and many of these, they're mad about the, for the very same reasons that they crucified Jesus in the first place. It's the same reason they're wanting to silence Peter and John. The resurrection is also the main source of frustration that they have. Notice in verse 2, they're greatly annoyed because of what? Verse 2, they're greatly annoyed. Why? Because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus, right? But what? What about Jesus? That he was a guy who lived and did some good things and was a nice person? No, 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 that Jesus was alive because they preached Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. You guys see that in verse 2? They preached the resurrection of the dead. And that is this main source of contention. And this, in, in all likelihood, is the main source of contention that we see all throughout Christian history and even today. The person of Jesus, not the fact that he was a historical figure, which cannot be denied, but the fact that he is actually alive and is resurrected from the dead. That is the one central point of all of human history that separates Christianity from any other religion. And it is probably the central point upon the entire action of human history swings. You could say it's the hinge, whatever you would like to say. It is the climax. It is the point when everything else changes. The, most, the single most important event in all of human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus foretells this when he speaks to Martha and Mary and the people who are weeping over Lazarus who has died. And he speaks to them. One of the most comforting words that we hear our Lord and Savior speaks before in John eleven thirty five, 35 when he says Jesus wept. Before that, he proclaims who he is and the power that is found within Jesus Christ because he says in John, an I am statement, one of the sevens that we looked at this summer, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? It's almost as if Jesus, speaking to Mary and Martha there, it's almost as if he looked, it's like that verse jumps off the page and, and, and it's like Jesus is speaking right to you. Do you believe this? And so Randy Alcorn says in his his book about the, uh, heaven, he says that Jesus' resurrection is the prototype for the resurrection of mankind and the earth. That Jesus' resurrection is not just something for that time period and for Jesus and for those people, but actually for you and for me. Romans 6 says that we've been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's our connection to his resurrection, that we, uh, to his death, that we find also a connection to our one day resurrection. Like a seed that is planted, he then bears that fruit of resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits of our resurrection. One day the great harvest of resurrection will happen when he returns. But Jesus being the first fruit that has been harvested of that resurrection, that we look to Jesus, we look to his example, and we find a living hope in the power of his resurrection for you and for me who place their faith in him. We find this throughout Christian tradition. In fact, if you go visit uh, different cemeteries and graveyards around New England, you can find uh, some very, very ancient, it seems, almost ancient uh, gravestones. And some of these gravestones are incredibly old, even before the Revolutionary War in such these times. I know in Dublin, the town I grew up in, where my, par- my father is buried and my grandparents are buried in uh, that place, there, you walk around that cemetery, there's some ancient, old, 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 extremely old um, um, 
gravestones. And some of those gravestones are like these slate, um, slate gravestones, kind of skinny, and they're often cockeyed to the side. You will often find in many of those graveyards this term. It's a Latin term, and on that, it'll say resurgum. Uh, it'll say resurgum right on the top of that circular gravestone very often. And in, in that term, that is a phrase that was etched in stone for, throughout Christian tradition for many times. Resurgum means I will rise again. <laughs> I will rise, okay, this idea. Because Jesus has rise, uh, risen from the grave, I will rise. And so resurgum has this concept of resurrection, meaning here lies a Christian. Here lies a Christian. Resurgum, I will rise it is a faith that when you lay my body into the ground, I believe that when Jesus returns, I will rise with him. Physically, spiritually, we will be together in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the hope that we have, a living hope, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this truth is powerful. This truth of Jesus' resurrection is central and it offends people. It offends people in such a way that many were offended and sought to put them in prison. Yet, it is also the life-saving power that many people are drawn to. For here we see 5,000 people turn, and who knows untold numbers beyond that. So we move on. Verses 5 through 7 also speak about this idea of not just what truth are we talking about, whose truth are we talking about. Today's culture would tell you to live your own truth. Live whatever truth you feel is best. Live the truth that you want to live, and that's truth. Meaning each person can become an individual definer of truth. You can change the definition of truth based on what you think and what you feel. Means we are all turning ourselves into little gods, acting as if we can decide uh, the actual definition of what truth is. It's saying ultimately, as our culture would tell us, there is no objective truth. There is no absolute truth. There is only the personal truth that you feel. So live your truth to find your identity and to find your true value and worth in life. When, when you look at the word of God, that is exactly opposite of what the Bible would teach us. The fact is the Bible tells us there is an absolute truth. And the way and the truth and the life is found in Jesus Christ. And when you seek and follow his truth, the truth of Jesus, you find your identity, purpose, value, and meaning in this world. And you also find healing and salvation. And so he, they ask this question. You'll see in verses 5 through 7, uh, Caiaphas and others, they ask this question. By what name or power did you do this? Who's a power and authority did you come by? Like, how did you go to this guy and the lame man and make him walk? By, by whose name do you come? Kind of like an ambassador to another nation. You might be sent to China, or you might be sent to India, or you might be sent to South Africa as an ambassador for the nation that you represent. You come to that country as an ambassador, and they say, by whose country, whose name do you come? I come on behalf of the President of the United States of America. I speak on the behalf of the people of the United States of America. I am an ambassador for that country in another place. Whose authority do you do these things? By what name do you claim to do these things by? And he says, I do this on the authority and the power and by the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter and John say. And this must have been a little bit of deja vu for them. You'll notice the name Caiaphas and Annas. These are the same names and the exact same people who just a few months ago literally had a fake trial for Jesus in the middle of the night and condemned him to die on a Roman cross. 
Caiaphas, this is one of the first places that when they arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they take him to the house of Caiaphas. Annas, who is the father-in-law to Caiaphas, is also there. There are other people, no doubt, Sadducees and Pharisees who were there present to make up this little fake council to then condemn this person of Jesus. And they asked him very many same questions. And so Peter and John were there. In fact, Peter must have been having, I can't imagine he didn't think of it, the fact that he remembers standing outside Caiaphas' place and the council that's going on, huddled around a fire and having people question him, are you with that guy? (laughs) Whose name uh, do you align with? Uh, Your accent really gives you away. I'm pretty sure I've seen you with that guy Jesus in there today. I don't know who you're talking about. Peter says three times definitively, I don't know who that man is. He denies Jesus three times because he is afraid. Jesus then comes up, the rooster crows, you know the whole story. And so the question then comes that Peter himself now has completely changed. It says in verses 8 through 10, we see in verse 8 that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice the difference in the change. Peter, in verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, wow, what an incredible statement that he just, this is his ability to preach, to speak, to heal, all of this through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is now with the apostles and in the church. Jesus told them this would happen. Jesus told them what they would, what was going to happen, that this was the reality, I want you to look really quickly, for sake of time, we don't have time to look at it all, but Luke 21, Luke 21 verse 12, let me read a little bit here, because it's fascinating the fact that Jesus has already warned them that they will be arrested, they will be persecuted, but when they speak, you'll be filled with the Spirit and you'll know what to say. Look at verse 12, this is back when Jesus is speaking to them of Luke 21, it says, but before all of this. They will lay hands on you, persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons. Jesus tells this to his disciples. And you will be brought before kings and governors for whose sake? For my name's sake. (laughs) This will be your opportunity, though, to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. Not to meditate beforehand how to answer, but I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will even be put to death. You will be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Your eternal life will preserve. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. You see this beauty, this statement. Jesus has already warned them at a time. This is going to happen to you. What's going to happen to me being crucified will happen to you in like manner. You will share in my sufferings, but do not worry. I will give you a comforter and a helper. He will teach you what to say. He will give you the power and authority to know how to respond when you are persecuted publicly in this way. Wow, that's a comfort. Because I think about myself and my own situation here. And it's one thing to get up here and preach things to a friendly crowd like you. It's another to preach a a message or to speak truth in a marketplace of people who are angry against this message, to give them a message of speaking the truth in love and offer that to many who you know do not want that. And so we we recognize that number three here is that the guide of all truth is with us, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. It says in John 15 and 16, the Spirit is the guide into the way of all truth. 
How do we know and understand the Word of God? How do we know and understand what to say? How do we know and understand how to have that conversation with somebody at work? The Spirit is with us and gives us understanding of things that we didn't know possible before. I often feel like that when I'm preaching or sharing the Word with someone, this idea of trying to counsel. There are times when I'm praying, Lord, I don't know what to say. Give me the words to say. I'll repeat to myself sometimes, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit internally because I need that understanding. Yes, you can read, you can study all you want, but to be able to know how to be able to apply those kinds of things in whatever situation that might be, the guide of all truth will be with you and guide that truth to land where it needs to land. And I believe that often happens in sermons. When I feel like I botch it, I feel like I have not delivered the message that you need to hear, many people come to me after and say, Pastor, that is exactly what I needed to hear. And it was like, well, thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit is real, is it not, right? That's because the Spirit speaks in and through the truth and delivers that truth, how frail I may try to offer it, and deliver that to have it land and plant in your heart to sprout new life. That's what God does. That's the power of preaching and the truth of God's word, the the reality that Jesus is alive and he lives in us through his Holy Spirit as the church. That truth is much more than just watching a YouTube video or, or reading a book on your own, but that there is a real spiritual practice of gathering and preaching God's truth. And that actually occurs here. And so we see this throughout history. There's these opportunities where the guide of all truth is with us. We see it particularly when, when someone stands on the truth in a very public way, someone like a Martin Luther in the past, where, where he's one that often comes, uh, standing on a firm foundation, where he is f- in front of the diet of worms or the diet of worms, right? This idea that he is standing before a council, giving a speech because he's been accused of heresy and he could be condemned to death. And he says these words before these people who are condemning Martin Luther for his writings and for his beliefs. And he says, since your most serene majesty, your highnesses require of me a simple and clear direct answer. Martin Luther says this, I will give one and it is this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from the Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text that I have cited, and if my judgment is not this way brought into subjection under God's word, then I can neither nor will recant anything. For it cannot be safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me and amen. That kind of boldness is what I think we see in a greater way here in Peter and John. This boldness to stand on their truth, not their truth, I must misspoke, but to speak on the truth of God's word, God's revealed word to them, what we have seen and what we have heard, what we've experienced and what we know to be true, to stand on that firm foundation that we spoke about. And ultimately, that firm foundation is cornered right in verse 11 and 12. If you look at that with me, Acts 4, verse 11 and 12, where he references Jesus as the cornerstone. An important biblical concept for you to understand, if you're new to the church, to come and understand, to grasp this idea of cornerstone. It pops up in several different places throughout the word. One of the first and most famous places is in Psalm 118. 
One of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament, Psalm 118, verses uh, 19 through 22. I think it even references, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's in Psalm 118. But he says that this, he is literally, Peter is quoting to them, this stone that you have rejected, you thought was a, a, a bad stone, brittled and broken, that you cast aside and you literally crucified that stone. That stone has been placed as the chief cornerstone to build the entire temple upon, the cornerstone, the standard bearer by which everything would be plumb and correct and right and that it would be firm. It would be a foundation whereby you could build a mighty spiritual temple upon. It is the cornerstone that makes everything else fall into place. It is the cornerstone that you rejected. That rejected stone has not become a stumbling block, but it is now a building block for the entire world to see the power of God. But it's a beautiful statement, his cornerstone, the stone that is rejected, it is that stone that you will find salvation upon, that you, as Peter would then, we don't have time, but Peter would then say in 1 Peter and 2 Peter that you then, as a spiritual living stone in his letters, would say that you are built into this holy temple with Christ as the cornerstone, you as a living stone are built into that spiritual temple to be the visible representation of Jesus Christ on earth, the, the people, the temple of God that housed that spirit of God on earth. So we see this concept that is preached to us, this ultimate statement, there is salvation in no other name, no other stone can you build this thing upon, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is our final and concluding idea, this idea of live not by lies, but tell the truth. The boldness that they preach with. It gets, like I said, even more intense. As we read through the book of Acts, you will see this amplify. The evil in the world and the persecution will come harder and harder upon the church as this time goes. In fact, I believe it's been said there's been more people persecuted and martyred for their faith in the 21st century than all the other centuries combined. It's not that this persecution and martyrdom has just stopped. It's just often we might not be as aware of it as it was before, but yet we see that this will intensify. And yet, here we see this beauty of boldness, I guess you could say, this bold statement that Peter and John, look, do with to us what you will. Almost a, a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of moment. Like I, you, do, you can throw me in the fiery furnace if you want. I, we're not bound down to your idol, dude. Like, we're, we're not doing it. So we're here because we love Jesus, and we're going to worship God and no other else, no one else. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, as we referenced earlier, was in a similar state, in a similar place to, to declare that live not by lies. So we have an opportunity here to stand on the truth. Though the Soviet Union might come down hard upon you, throw you in jail, and take your life, at least you can say, I stood on the truth. At least you could say my soul is preserved. They can take my body, they can take my life, they can take everything I have, but they cannot take my Jesus. And that's a statement even for us in the 21st century. As we're faced with all sorts of things that come against you in big ways, yes, government ways, yes, but also small ways. Just family decisions that you have. Your family, you're going to decide as a family, we're not going to live under the lies that are purported and sold to everybody else. We're going to live in the truth. We're going to model our family by the truth. And we're going to stand on that and nothing else. You could play the game two truths and a lie, you know. One lie makes it all fall down, right? 
It breaks down. The ultimately, the most important thing is to stand on the truth of Jesus Christ. What do we see in, in Ephesians 4? We see this statement that says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then it scoots on to Ephesians chapter 6, where you get a story, not a story, an illustration, a message of the whole armor of God. Last night for the trunk or treat, I was a knight in shining armor. I mean, a fitting, right? You know? And uh, I was protecting my princesses with my sword, right? I had a shield and a helmet and all these things, right? And so the idea was that the spiritual armor, here in Ephesians 6, you see this picture of the spiritual armor that is given. And yet, what in that list do we see? Some of you are, grew up in Sunday school, you might know these things. There's a breastplate of righteousness, right? There's these shoes uh, for the readiness and the gospel of peace. There's a shield of faith. There's a helmet of salvation. There's a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But you know the very first item that is listed in that list? The very first item that a Christian is meant to place on spiritually is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. It's listed first. You could say it might be the most crucial part. The sword is placed in its sheath. The, The belt literally holds up everything else, right? The belt of truth, if it is not there, everything falls down. Everything breaks down. Nothing works together. It is the truth that keeps things together. The cornerstone of Jesus Christ, which makes the whole temple to be built upon and stand. And then it is then wielding the one offensive weapon, the spirit, right? The, the, the sword of the spirit. And it says in that passage, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Where do we find the truth? We find the truth in the Word of God. It is by knowing and getting into the Word of God that you then are able to wield that truth, that sword of the Spirit, not only to defend yourself against the wiles and the attacks and the fiery darts of the wicked, but to then, in a sense, take that truth and wield it against the evil lies of the devil in this world, to be able to share that truth in love in so many ways to share the loving aspect of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is exclusive in the sense where it says, there is no other way to salvation, but inclusive in in the way that it says, it is for anyone and everyone who would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it is that truth that we must wield. It is that belt of truth that we must wear. So some of this might be for an action step as we close. It's for us to get into the word of God, get to know the truth of God. For the truth is not just some like, like idea out there. The truth is a person. You get to know Jesus by getting to know his word and what he said. So get into his word and study it and ask questions of someone else. Perhaps it's taking an action step of acts as we have in the back. These little booklets and packets that can help you learn the gospel message and the truth of God's word in a way that you can then begin to go out and share that with someone else. So we have action steps on the back of the connect wall over there. You can get a Bible from the connect table. You can learn and study that in a way that you've never done before to have your eyes opened because Jesus tells us the truth will set you free. And when you encounter the truth of Jesus Christ, it changes you, it transforms you to a place where you then want to be able to share that with other people. Because the truth of Jesus is this, that Jesus is a stone that was rejected by so many of us, you and me, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The message of Jesus 
is that he has come to save you for his love is, has motivated them to share the person of Jesus, both God and man, on that cross, to be buried in the grave, three days rise again, and he is alive. And that faith gives us, gives us hope, a living hope for tomorrow, a hope that so many people in this world desperately need. And then it welcomes them to call upon that name of Jesus, and they too can be saved. This is the core of Christianity. This is the core of why we do church. This is one of the main, if not the main reason as to why we are here today. And as, as Paul also tells us in Thessalonians, that we take these words about the resurrection and the future of what God is going to come, and we seek to encourage each other in that. Like you needed this today. You needed to come here and be reminded of something that perhaps many of you already knew, but you needed to be reminded and have that desire to now go and do. Don't just leave and remain unchanged, but go and share this message with others. Jesus is the cornerstone and we stand on him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask God you'd be glorified in them all. Thank you for everything you've taught us this morning. Thank you for everything that you're going to do. The reality of these people in this church, these new members, these people that are present here, these children, these lives. Thank you, God, for them. I ask God that you would encourage these people as is prayed in Acts later on that these people prayed for boldness. I pray for boldness for our church and for these people. Help us to live by the truth, to live by your words. Thank you, God, for this essential gospel message. That you died, you were buried, and you rose again. And you are coming again, and we look forward to that day. Thank you for being our hope. Thank you for being our cornerstone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.